Our study this morning is back in the book of 1 Peter. So let's take our Bibles and turn to chapter 1. There has already been so much uh, truth and application in the first 16 verses that we've studied, and we've really only scratched the surface a little bit uh, of what is here. But um, the personal application has really been strong, hasn't it? I mean, I, I know I've been really convicted as we have studied And um, Peter really gets right to the point. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't give a lot of greetings. Uh, He doesn't talk about personal things. He just goes right into it and starts to talk very boldly and very bluntly. We'd expect nothing less from Peter uh, about what is uh, what we know to be true and what that calls us to do in our lives. So just to kind of echo a couple of our themes, we were reminded in the first couple of verses of our living hope in Christ. We're reminded that we have an eternal inheritance through him. And then he started to talk about our need for faith uh, to be tested and proven. That's the challenging part of the spiritual walk when our faith is tested and proven. But it's for our benefit. And James says it's to make us more complete. And then we saw this call a couple weeks ago, verse 13 and beyond, uh, to be sober and prepared. To not be conformed to our old life, but instead to be holy. And that word we we developed a little bit and talked about um, what it means to be holy. Now, Peter speaks from experience. There's probably nobody that speaks from experience more in Scripture. I tried to think of somebody that that could more, maybe David, um, but there's really nobody that speaks from his own personal experience more than Peter. Peter had lived this. Peter knew what it was to be different. Uh, He was a very radically different person than he had been before he met Christ. And now, toward the end of his life, he's able to write with great confidence and to challenge us uh, in our walk to live out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to, to personify the holiness that has gripped us and has changed us and the Spirit is used to transform us, to, to allow that holiness now to take hold and to change the way we live. And Peter knew that that calling was very serious. That's why he doesn't, he doesn't kind of mess around and, and kind of be lighthearted here. He really gets right down to it because he knew the eyes of the Lord's evaluation. Peter knew what it like to have Jesus look right at him and say, I'm watching you. I'm testing you. I'm, I'm looking to see, even though I already know, I'm looking to see what your response is going to be right now. I, I, I have an understanding of what you're going to do already. But but now you're going to feel my eyes. And I, I don't know anybody else really that felt it quite as strongly as Peter did. We've talked about what's happened when they were when Jesus was arrested and the look that he gave Peter. We've talked about uh, being on the on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and when they sat eating and Jesus very directly said to Peter, Do you love me three times? And so so Peter knew what it li- was like to be scrutinized. He knew what it was like to be questioned by Jesus and to have his actions watched. So he writes here, when we look at this passage this morning, he writes in personal knowledge. And that's what motivates his segue here between verse 16 and verse 17 into our passage of the morning, which is going to be verses 17 to 25. And he doesn't shy away from saying that this call to holiness is based in a large part on our uh, knowledge of God's judgment. 
and our knowledge of God's constant assessment of our soul. Now, as I kind of studied that and wrote that in my notes, I thought that's a very sobering thought for a hot July morning, that God is constantly assessing, He's constantly watching, He's constantly evaluating, and, and we could even go as far to say, because that's the word in the text, judging our motives, judging our actions, judging what we do, judging our attitudes constantly. And it's not only an evaluation of our moral character and our behavior, but it's also an evaluation of our active participation in our calling and commission to serve Him. He is constantly watching. What's your attitude toward me? What's your attitude toward holiness? How is that being carried out in your life? And then, what is your attitude toward the lost? What's your attitude toward ministry? What's your attitude toward praising me? What's your attitude toward prayer? What, what is your attitude toward all these things? He's constantly looking at that. And that may turn some people off. Some people may say, well, I don't want to be under that kind of scrutiny. I don't, I don't want the Lord to watch me that way. But this passage will give us both the method and the motivation and the means to not only be okay with it, but to actually love it. So let's look at what the Spirit writes to us through Peter. He says, starting in verse 17, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Thank you for turning in your Bibles. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, that's a very important sentence, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are be, uh, believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, if you go back to verse 17, you see that Peter says that in light of the Lord's impartial and loving examination of our life and our work, that the next response that we have because of that, because of our understanding of that, is to conduct ourselves in fear. Now that's an interesting phrase because of the meaning of the words, and I had an experience on Friday that, that made it really come to life. So let's talk about the words first. The word conduct, because we love words, right? Everybody loves words? Say amen. Good. The words are important. We don't want to just take what the English transcribers wrote because there's a depth to the words in the Greek language, the Hebrew language, the Aramaic language that, that takes us further, okay? So we think conduct, we think a couple things. We think electricity, we think a band leader, we think actions. Those are the three ways that we use the word conduct. But the word here is very important. It, it metaphorically means to behave yourself, okay? We would expect that. Behave yourself in, in, in fear and trembling. In other words, be careful, be judicious, be, be cautious in the way that you live. But the meaning in the original language goes much deeper. It means to turn upside down. 
So not only behave yourself if you're troubling, but turn upside down. Now, I sat and I, I looked at that and I thought, well, what does that mean? And I think there's a double meaning here. First of all, I think it means to live in an opposite way from the way we used to live. Now, we know that from Romans. We know that from James. We know that from Hebrews. We know that all throughout Scripture, Ephesians, Colossians, they all talk about living in a way that you didn't used to live. So our old self dies, our new self is raised up, the Spirit transforms us and empowers us, we live in a different way. That's, that's turning our lives upside down. But I think there's a second meaning. And I think what Peter is calling us to here is to essentially ransack our minds and our actions to look for anything that has the characteristics of the old life. In other words, not only, hey, turn it upside down, live differently, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been filled with the Spirit, live differently. Not just that, but but go in and and turn some pillows around and turn up the couch and look underneath and, and go under the bed of your life to see if there's anything, as David writes, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked whammy. Search for anything that would be characteristic of our old life. You see, if you're missing something precious, about about eight years ago, I lost my wedding ring. have no idea how it happened. One day, I'm walking out the door, my wedding ring's gone. We turned the house upside down. We looked everywhere for it. Couldn't find it. Now, when something is precious to us, and it's, and it's missing, or we know something's wrong, we don't say, oh, I lost my wedding ring. Wow, that's really sad. Well, I guess I won't wear a ring anymore. No, that was precious to me. I don't know of a possession that I value more. So we literally took the bed and put it up and said, yikes. And then we cleaned and looked for the ring. And, and yeah, your bed's like that too. Come on. Go home and do it this afternoon. You'll say yikes too. Couldn't find it. I mean, I couldn't have been more diligent looking for it. Never found it. It was precious. And because it was precious, I had to make sure that I sought it out with everything that I had. Now, our spiritual walk, our our transformed lives are precious. And if there's something that's harming that, we need to seek it out and get rid of it. And notice what Peter says. He says, seek it out with holy behavior Because you're terrified. That's the literal meaning of the word fear. You're terrified that your time on earth will be anything but pleasing to the Lord. Be terrified that there's anything that would hinder you and me from being spiritually mature, in love with Jesus Christ, representing Him well, moving on to a state where He is utilizing us in a powerful way. We should be terrified that we're not there. And that changes how we live. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He says, conduct yourself with fear. Now, I was studying this passage as we were flying on Friday. And right after... I started studying right after I had read an article about one of the victims of last year's theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado. The girl's name was Jessica Gawi. She was apparently somebody who was happy and strong and loved by a lot of people. She got a front page article, USA Today, on Friday. And a month after, a month before uh, she was shot in Colorado, she had been in Toronto in a mall. And there was a shooting in the mall in Toronto where the gunman had opened fire on the crowd. A couple of people had been killed. And 
profoundly affected her. And she wrote this on her website. I was shown how fragile life was. I saw the victims of a senseless crime. I saw lives changed. I was reminded that we don't know when or where our time on earth will end, when or where we'll breathe our last breath. For one man, it was in the middle of a busy food court on a Saturday evening. So often I found myself taking life for granted. Every hug from a family member, every laugh we share with friends, even the times of solitude are all blessings. Every second of every day is a gift. After Saturday evening, I know how truly, I truly understand how blessed I am for each second that I'm giving. Now, that sounds like a believer. I don't think from anything I've read that she was a believer. Those experiences that she had didn't apparently lead her to the Lord. Instead, the article went on to say that she decided for the last six weeks of her life, she didn't know they were the last six weeks of her life, that she would try to live life to the fullest. So she went skydiving and she partied and she pursued her career. And then that night in Colorado, she went to the movies. Now, as I read about that, we were flying through some of the most magnificent clouds I'd ever seen. And if you know me, you know that I really love clouds. So I've had a fun time the last couple of days with the clouds we've seen. We threw through these magnificent, towering thunderheads that were just stacked up almost, I tried to think how to describe it, almost like stalks of corn, just segmented as far as you could see, just huge, puffy, tall clouds. And as I read that quote, and then I read, I looked at those clouds, and then I came back to my Bible, it gave me just such a renewed perspective. I, I thought more about the awesomeness of God, and then the short scope of our lives, and suddenly it just hit me again, and it's not a particularly profound thought, it's something we all know, but maybe we don't think of it often enough. The thought was, there is life after this life. This is not all there is. This this is not the the the... Uh, the Exist, the, the sense of our existence. This is not everything. There's so much more beyond this. And we have to fight against temporal thinking. We have to fight against the here and now and get a greater view of eternity. Because if we don't, what happens? We get caught up in the minutia, don't we? We get caught up in the little petty stuff that occupies too much of our, of our heart and our mind. And that thought, as we've been studying through First Peter, keeps grabbing me. How, how caught up, how wrapped up we get in the minor issues and the short-term problems, and we forget the broader importance of our calling. We fall into that trap of, of self-focus and forget that the Lord is constantly, look at First Peter 1.17, constantly evaluating, constantly testing our heart and our mind and our service for Him. And Peter knew that well. He had fallen into the trap many times. And it's gracious of the Lord to give us an example. I don't know about for you, but for me, certainly true. It's gracious of the Lord to give us an example of someone that's so much like us. Because I know that I fall into this. I know that I act like this. I know I'm quick to respond. I know I'm quick to think. And and Peter is saying, be careful. Know that the Lord's evaluating. Know that the Lord is watching. But we get so easily consumed with trying to find purpose and approval and gratification where it doesn't exist. So Peter says, here's your rationale. Here's your your impetus. Here's your great motivation in life. I'll wrap it up in 11 verses. You are not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood. Your redemption, 
believer, my redemption believer, does not come with perishable things. What a brilliant sentence that is. It it takes us away from any thought of a works-based theology. Because how could we do something or hold something or venerate something that would redeem our soul? It's impossible. The redemption comes from the Lord. And for proof of this, Peter addresses his Jewish readers and he says, oh, remember your forefathers? We all know the perfect example. The example is the golden calf. They made a man-made object of worship and they revered it over the gracious, all-powerful God who had brought them out of bondage and gave them a, a, a path of, of, uh, of clarity and gave them a place of hope and a place of blessing and said, I'll be with you and be your God and be present and help you. And they had the audacity to say, we don't want that. And Peter says, let me describe that audacity in one word. The word is right here, and it's in verse 18. He says, it was futile. It was futile. The word literally means useless and having no purpose. It's futile to imagine that we could be delivered by anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. And look at the contrasting image to futile and perishable things. He says it's his precious blood, the lamb that was unblemished and spotless. In Old Testament times, everybody would bring a lamb that was unblemished, that was spotless, the purest of the pure that they could bring. And they'd bring it on the Day of Atonement. And the priest would lay it on the altar. And the person would put their hand on the lamb's head to identify with it. And then they'd cut its throat. And the blood would spill out. And that would be the atonement. That would be the blood of the sacrifice. But here's the problem. Every year you had to do it. With Jesus, it was once and for all. Victory secured. He died on the cross. His blood was shed. And as the perfect, pure Lamb of God, Hebrews 10 says, there's no more sacrifice for sin that's not necessary. Jesus has already provided it. He's victorious. He's secured it. Redemption is accomplished. And here's the powerful truth that Peter teaches. Look at this. This was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, God's timeless. We know that. So he knew and saw immediately. There's no progression of time with the Lord. He sees it all now. He knew and saw what would happen with man and sin and what would be needed to remove that sin and redeem us. So that raises two very difficult questions. Why create us with the capacity to sin? Why would he do that? And knowing how sin would corrupt mankind, why not stop it? Before it happened. Now, theologians have debated this for for decades and years and and millenniums and however many years you want. People have debated this since this was written. Seminary courses, graduate courses have been taught trying to to get us to understand it. But we're going to try to narrow it down in about three minutes. Okay? That's good, right? Now you don't have to sit through a seminary class where the guy is reading his notes. We'll just narrow it down to five or six truths. Because we can't fully understand it. The mind of God is different from the mind of man. How many are glad for that? So we can't fully understand it, but, 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 but we have to come to a realization that we can still trust, we can still believe in something that's inscrutable to us. God's ways are inscrutable. He can't 
be understood fully. You don't have the mental capacity and neither do I or the spiritual wisdom to know to know the full mind of God and to reconcile what he does, does with our thinking. And if we get caught up in that and say, well, I'm not going to believe till I understand. We'll never believe. Our faith will be stunted. But that doesn't mean we can't study it and learn from it and ask the Spirit for wisdom. And the Lord gives us this book. It's such a wealth of truth. So let's try to let's try to be to be uh, uh, to gain a better understanding of why God did this. So let me give you five or six truths here. Maybe you want to write them down and look at them later. First truth: God is all wise and He's sovereign. So He always knows what is right and what is best. Therefore, if that statement's true, and if it's not, go home because you don't need to worship anymore. If God is all-wise, and He's all-sovereign, and He's the Lord of all things, He cannot be questioned by His creation, because we have a fallible and limited understanding. God is all-wise, and He's sovereign. Second, God created us with free will. We're not robots. We have the ability to choose. We have the ability to believe. We have the ability to not believe. We have the ability to act. And we reconcile the first one and the second one by knowing that His sovereignty is not hindered by our free will, but He allows us to have our will. Does that make sense? You with me? His will will ultimately be done no matter what. He's not limited by us. He is still God and Lord of all at the end of the day. He will have His way, but He allows us freedom. Third, His incredible love and mercy is shown by the fact that based on one and two, He still created us and He did not stop man's progression once Adam and Eve sinned, which we all would have done. Instead, He chose to have compassion on His creation and to provide a way of forgiveness. Now, that's where some people get a little stuck because they say, well, why did God allow that? And that makes Him less than God. And my argument till the day I die or until Jesus comes will be, no, it makes him more God. It doesn't make him less God. It makes him more God because we understand his love and mercy exponentially to be more magnificent that at the point of our sin, listen now, he proceeded, that's our term, limited knowledge, he proceeded to plan, again our term, to send Christ to save. God's mercy and love is such that even as He knew this creation is going to defy me and rebel and sin and turn against me, that even at that point God says, oh, but I have a plan. And I'm going to send my Son. And here's number five. That plan involves my complete sacrifice for a completely selfish and sinful creation. My plan is to sacrifice myself so that those selfish sinners will be saved. And that means that my son is going to shed his own blood and he's going to die a horrible death even though he's pure and is is innocent completely. His creation is going to put him on a cross and kill him and his blood is going to be shed so my people can be redeemed. Now, look at the last phrase here and we'll move on. He says, he did this, he did this for the sake of you. 
God sent Christ for our sake. He sent Christ to redeem us. Now Peter says, and this is where the the transition takes place, verse 22. Peter says, armed with that truth, knowing that that is true, that God evaluates our actions, and that God evaluates our actions as believers because he's redeemed us by his own sacrifice with the plan that he set in motion before we ever sinned. Knowing all of that, here's how we apply it. When we put faith and hope in Christ, it should produce a significant response. And look at what he says here in verse 22. Since, that's the transition word, because of this, as a result of what I've just said, here's the, here's the bottom line to the argument, here, here's where it comes to evaluation time. Since this has happened, since you are in obedience to the truth, the only logical next response is to purify your soul. Now I want you to notice how it's written because it's not given as a suggestion or something for the future. It's written as a given. In other words, this has already happened. Since you have been in obedience to the truth and that's caused you to purify your souls. In other words, obedience to the truth is marked by the purification of our soul that encompasses mind, heart, body, actions, and words. In other words, your obedient response to your faith is that everything in your life is pure. Now, that's a very important spiritual principle because we have been declared pure through faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit's been given to us and given us a new nature that is pure, and indwelled us and convicts us to stay pure. But notice by the writing of the word, verse 22, that it is up to us to keep it pure. Not just go to a wash periodically. Not, not, just, not, not just, well, kind of partially cleanse yourself. It's not real important that, that everything be cleansed. Just get most of it. Not spray yourself once in a while when it's convenient. That's not the meaning of the word here. He says, we are to be pure. Pure. And there's a corollary response that has intent to it once we do this. And this is where we want to get into the last part of our study. We purify our souls not to make ourselves feel better. We purify our souls not just to ease our guilt or to show off. We are called here in verses 22 and 23 to purify our souls so that we can love one another from our heart. Now he uses two adjectives here that are important. He says we're to do this sincerely. The word sincerely here means undisguised and not fake. Have you ever been around somebody who's insincere? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, it's great. Good to see you. Everything's super. Yeah, you know they're not telling you the truth. Oh, it's good. We do this sometimes. Anybody ever done this? I've done it. Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. Everything's wonderful. And inside you're churning. And uh, things are horrible, but I'm not going to let you see it. Or you talk to somebody and you know they're holding back. Or, or maybe they just don't like you and they don't want to tell you who they are and how they are. So, so he's saying that's not how we love one another. That's not how this body is going to love one another. We're going to love each other sincerely, 
undisguised. It's going to be open and it's going to be genuine. There's going to be nothing disingenuous. Now, this is a good evaluation point for whatever is going on in your heart and your head towards someone in this room this morning or somebody that's not in this room this morning. Are you loving them? Am I loving them in a sincere way? Open, honest, real, truthful, forthright. Or are we kind of holding back, watching a little bit, angling a little bit? And then he says, second, look at it, we're to love fervently. That means seriously and intensely with maturity instead of working the angles and being hypocritical. That's not actually love. But we like to tell ourselves that it is as long as we can. Because maybe the person's a jerk and I don't want to love them. Maybe the person's been unkind to me and I don't want to love them. Maybe they've hurt us. Maybe we just simply don't like them. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't equivocate here and say, well, love one another sincerely and fervently unless they're a jerk and then you're off the hook. That's not how Jesus loved us. Because we were all jerks. We were all alienated from him. We had all rebelled. We all loved sin. We all said, we don't want you, God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Not while we were doing good and drawing toward him and desiring him and saying, Lord, will you please send a savior? No, it was while we were yet sinners. So Jesus says, uh-uh, love isn't conditional. Love for each other isn't, well, I'm going to hold back until something's better. It is fervent and sincere. In other words, the crucified life that Randy talked about last week, that that's carried out in this way. We sanctify our hearts and live purely and live righteously. Yes, to please the Lord so he'll know we love him and we're committed to him. Yes, yes that, is, that is one of the things that, that happens. But there's another part to it. There is an altruistic, sacrificial, humble, deferential purpose for purifying ourselves. Listen, this is very important. It is to show our sincere, passionate love for each other and then for those who don't yet know Christ. We are holy to satisfy the Lord and we're holy so we can love and minister to people more effectively. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Because if we thought this way and we live this way, how would it change us? How would it change our marriages? Some of you have experienced that. Your marriage is struggling and it's fractured and then the Lord breaks through and you realize, I need to be more like Christ. And it changes your perspective and your attitude toward your spouse and you start to think differently. Or maybe this morning you're here and you need to realize that. Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse and it's fractured right now and and you haven't drawn close to the Lord and said, Lord, help me. I need to be more holy. I need to have the mind of Christ. How would thinking living that way alter and restore our family relationships? How would it alter our relationships within the church? Because every problem, every disagreement, every jealousy, every break traces back, listen now, to not being pure and not having the mind of Christ. Think about any hurt in your life right now. Think of it more relationally maybe than anything. Any conflict you have, any resentment, every, any disunity, either you're the one who's really at fault or you're the one who's been offended. It really doesn't matter. 
Because the bottom line to that problem is a lack of humility and a lack of holiness on somebody's part or both people's part. And when that happens, it shows a lack of love because love is proven by self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice is rooted in humility and holiness. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. You know the next line? Who emptied himself. Believer, Rhodes, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, who emptied himself and laid aside his rights and became a bondservant. We talked about the concept of the bondservant in our Revelation study, remember? It means a voluntary, unconditional, and permanent surrender of our rights and our will in order to serve the Master. So there's an, uh, 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 an undeniable correlation between being bondservants and being loving and unified with each other. This is why the enemy pushes so strongly the inclination to be proud and to be worldly because that's exactly the opposite of being like Christ and being holy. So the enemy can read, he can study, he knows the word. If we're holy and set apart and righteous and distinctive from our culture and not like the world and not having an appetite for what the world loves and we're like Christ, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that our churches will be full of praise. He knows that we'll be calling on the Lord. He knows that we'll be becoming mature disciples. He knows that we'll be loving each other. And he knows that we'll be ready to go out and reach people for Christ. So he says, how can I stop that? I'll make them worldly. And I'll make them proud. Because if I can make them worldly and proud, none of that will happen. Holiness is not just being churched. It's not just trying hard. It's the practical, everyday extension of what Christ has done in our life. And that not only has, look back at the text one more time, that not only has significant implications with the body, it has major implications for our ministry to a lost world. Because if we're pure and holy and we're loving each other, it will change how we view those who don't trust Jesus as their Savior, even just in the way we see them like Jesus, with compassion. And the effort that we'll make will now be ramped up because we'll say, well, those people need to know this too. And they'll start to look at us and they'll see the radical difference in how we're living and our behavior. I have to believe that this is the biggest impediment to the, to the church, not just this church, to the church's effectiveness in impacting our culture. We have told ourselves for 40 years we're not relevant enough. And I think it's just the opposite. I think we're not set apart enough. It's not that we're not relevant. We live and work with people who don't trust Christ. They don't look at us and go, you're green, you're weird. What's wrong with you? We're just like them. And that's the problem. That's the problem. If there's no distinctiveness they won't believe that faith and conviction transforms. And they'll say, well, what's the point? Why would I go to church on Sunday? If you are just like me, and yet you say you're a believer, what's the difference? Why, why, 
why, why would I wake up early and go to a hot building and sit and listen to that guy? That doesn't make any sense because you look just like me. So the problem is not that we're not like them enough. The problem is that we're not different enough not to be proud and say, look at us. No, come on, we know that. So the people say, what's going on with you? What's happened? Why do you do things? Why do you say things that are different? Why don't you get uptight? Why do you love me? I'm kind of a creep. And we say, well, that's what God's done. That's what Jesus has done. And they say, all right, I got to know about this. Seriously, I don't know about this. That's not right. Oh, it is right. We have to be set apart. And if we were holy like Christ, and he's our standard, be holy as I'm holy, our desire for him would increase. And we would crave righteous living. And we crave to be in his presence. That which, that's what Jesus did. Jesus sought time with the Father, even though he and the Father are one. And he sought people to minister to. And he sought the lost to redeem. And he sought you and me. And it's no excuse for us that some people are unlovable. Mean, nasty, hurtful, whatever. He didn't die for the happy, nice people because there weren't any. He died for us when we were mean and nasty and unkind. And he said, I want to sacrifice for you so you don't have to live like that. Now be holy and you'll love. So, bottom line, is holiness our foremost priority? Is loving God and loving others, the two greatest commandments were given by Jesus, our primary motivation? Are we constantly thinking, the Lord is watching my behavior? Some people say, well, that's, that's too intrusive. I don't, I don't want to live that way. God shouldn't hold me to that standard. Well, the alternative is that he holds us to the standard of his perfection without the help of Jesus and without the help of the Spirit. So those are the options. We can be held to his perfection without the salvation of Christ and the transformation of the Spirit and his ongoing work. Or we can be held to a standard with all that. It's so much easier and so much more joyful not to live in our own righteousness, which is an oxymoron, but to live in the righteousness that he's given to us. Over the last four weeks, the Lord's been impressing this theme of holiness on our hearts. And now it's got a motivation attached to it. This is the way that we will love each other more perfectly. By purifying our hearts and by following his command, it will change the way we act. And it's going to be more natural than we think because as we become more holy, we become more like him. And as we become more like him, we have his mind. And his mind, his attitude, Philippians 2, was to sacrifice. I flew through those clouds Friday and I looked out from that perspective of 38,000 feet, and I thought again of what Christ did for us, that he descended and condescended to come down to us, to redeem us and to change us. And then he went back up through those clouds and said, I'm going to send you my spirit to equip you to live that way. Now, conduct yourselves with fear during your stay on earth. Because you weren't redeemed with perishable, you were redeemed with my Precious blood. Now purify your soul and sincerely love each other. That's a hard word, isn't it? But it's what we're called to. Let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you this morning for this great calling you've put on our lives. Lord, it's a challenge to us and it's difficult. 
You know how we are. You know that we're proud. You know that we're selfish. You know that we're stubborn. Those are in our human nature, and yet, Lord, we don't live by our human nature anymore. You've given us a new nature. And no matter how difficult it may be and how challenging people can be to us and how challenging we can be to other people, you have called us to live holy lives, pleasing to you, so that we can love each other more perfectly. Lord, we pray that you would challenge us this morning in the areas of our life where we are not doing this. That you would cause us to be convicted about people that we're not loving the way that we should. About relationships that are fractured because we're proud or we're worldly or because we simply just don't want to give in our will. We ask you this morning, Lord, for the mind of Christ. We ask your spirit to work in our lives so that we cannot escape the call to be holy and set apart. Because, Lord, the only way the body of Christ will be unified, the only way that the body of Christ will be effective is if we love one another and then love our world. Lord, do a fresh work in our midst, we ask. Do a mighty work that will change how we think and how we live and how we minister. And Lord, we will give you all the praise and the glory for what you're going to do because you alone are worthy of it. Help us, Lord, we pray. Right now, even as we sit here, Lord, don't delay in any way. Help us right now, we ask. And change the way we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.